This is a podcast of the Church at Indian Lake. One of the things that I get as a pastor is I, I get the privilege of hearing a lot of people's dreams. And I take that as very precious. I never hear someone's dreams and take that lightly because our dreams are, are really our future. And so I always take seriously people's dreams. But one of the biggest gaps in life is the gap between a great dream and a great vision and the first step to implement that. That's one of the greatest gaps in life, just taking the first step. Because before you take the first step, there's no risk. You can have a vision, you can have a dream, you can have an idea, and, and when, if you never step out and try to implement it, then you never take the risk of not succeeding. But you know what? When we do that, when we let our dreams just stay as visions and as ideas, they never take the life that Jesus wants them to have. Now, when I start to talk to you about visions and dreams, one of the great misconceptions is this. When we're talking about a vision or dream, that it has to be this big, grand scale. Like, you know, some of the examples I'm going to give you tonight are examples of large, grand scale things. But a vision or dream can be anything. I mean, if you can see something as it is now and believe it can be something different in the future, that's a vision. For example, the lobby you pass through every week. I have had a vision for that lobby for two years. I've rearranged the furniture. I've done different things to it. But I have a vision for that lobby that is yet not taken flight, and someday it will as the Lord provides fun. If you've been to the living room, the, the room that has tile in it, my original vision was to have couches and comfortable furniture and things like that. That vision hasn't come to pass yet. But see, in your life, that's the same thing, whether it's something as something you know as, as a clean car, something as, I don't even want to say trivial, but uh, are the things about your family. You know, when I, when I think about my family, I think about my vision for the future. Or it can be a great cause. But you see, excellence is always a great cause in our life. And, and that is a great cause for you. So I, I want to spend some time uh, talking, and, and we're going to go through Nehemiah, uh, not, not verse by verse, but more concept through concept, just some concepts as a guide of a man who took a vision and he led a people to do that. Turning vision into action. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the easy part. This is the easy part tonight for a lot of people. That is identifying the vision. But I hope that you see tonight that even though it is easy, that there's some principles that, that are going to help you find a God-centered vision. What God has for you. And that is one of the great differentiations that we have in life, is, is showing the difference between our vision for our life and God's vision for our life. And we want those to align. And so tonight we're going to talk about identifying your vision. Let's pray together. God, I do ask, Lord, that everything... Every single thing you've put in the heart of my brothers and sisters, not the thing that the enemies put in their hearts, and not the thing that, that uh, others have put in that are, are not appropriate or not of you, but everything you have put in their hearts, Lord, we pray, Lord, that it would come forth. And that, Lord, you would let us be people of vision, people, Lord, of action. And that we would take every step we need to, to move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
I went to, I grew up in a great church, but it was, it was quirky in a lot of ways. Uh, it was a strange church. It was an era where some, just, just was caught up in some, some different type of stuff. But I love the church. I love the pastor. I still do. That church today is actually way more contemporary than our church, and they've totally changed. But at that era, they, they were not reaching our culture. They were not reaching our community. I remember in high school, late high school, I was out to dinner with a group of my friends, uh, not all of them who were living for Christ, but these were influential students in our community that the Lord had given me favor with and had become close friends. And I remember in the course of the conversation, inviting them to an event that was happening at our church. And there was great resistance to, to them coming. It, it was one of those deals, you know, you give a ticket or something and a big event deal, and there was just great resistance there. And before I knew it, a dam broke at the table because one of the girls there just said it out loud. She said, why would I ever come to your church? She began to rattle off a list of observations about our church and our church's reputation in the community. And as she's giving these, I'm seeing heads go like this. And I knew that the consensus at the table was against me. And I realized that my friends were right. That our body had given them a lot of reasons not to attend. And I, I, I made a decision then. It, it wasn't the final decision, but it was certainly a huge piece of the puzzle. And, and here's the decision that when I led a church, because I had already filling those calls to be a pastor, that I was going to lead a church that was different. I was going to lead a church that I would be proud of inviting my friends to. That I wouldn't have to be embarrassed or ashamed. And I'm not talking about, we would ne I was never embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was embarrassed and ashamed of other Christians. Never ashamed of Jesus. He, he, he's never to be ashamed of. But some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, could be sometimes. And I'm talking about just, just, just so everybody's like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about just um, gross materialism, a, a disregard for the world, a disregard for the community, a very, um, you know, a, a very self-centered type of, of church culture at that time. So I made a decision that when I lead a church, I was going to lead a church that was different, that was relevant, that, that made a difference in the community. So let me ask you this question. What is it about what what is it that really irritates you? What is it that really upsets you? I mean I mean is there something that just gets under your skin and just you just see something and say it shouldn't be this way. Because for me that was a defining moment when I thought church shouldn't be this way. Church shouldn't be like this. But what is it for you? What is it that really, really bugs you? Because I want to propose to you that the very thing that really bothers you, the very thing that really bugs you, could be the very thing that's birthing God's vision for your life. You see, it could be this, that you really don't like, you really can't stand it when music is bad in church. When, when the singing's off-key and the, and the uh, instruments aren't synced. And people are unprepared. And you just can't stand it when it's that way in church. Well, maybe God's calling you to be passionate about 
quality church music. Could be that it really bothers you that children don't know the Bible anymore. And that they don't know the Ten Commandments. And they don't know the Bible stories. And it just really bugs you that this generation of children don't know the Bible. But it could be that that's the birth of your vision to be a teacher to children. What is it that, that, that really gets under your skin? Because it could be a huge part of what God's vision for your life is. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Nehemiah ran into a, a, a situation. He went back to Jerusalem and... They, and he discovered that in he discovered that in Jerusalem the, the the walls of the city and the temple were destroyed. Read with me Nehemiah one three. He said they said to me those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned. You can help me out there. Burned with. Thank you, thank you. Burned with fire. Way to read your word, brother. Here it was that the city, Nehemiah was in, in Babylon at that time, and the city that he loved, he heard the report that it was in ruin. And he just said, that can't be. I cannot let the city I love be in ruin. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. God's vision is often identified by a need that grips you. A need that grips you. When you just say that, you know, there's needs all around us, but there's some needs that just, just come out and just grab us by the throat and say, it shouldn't be this way. We've got to do something. Have you ever just had that drive where you said, we've got to do something? You know, when you're exposed to all types of needs, I mean, there, there are just a, a gluttony of needs in this world. So much that, that it would be hard for any of us to give all the needs that are in our community and our world, the proper attention that's needed. But there's a need. There's something that's going to grip you. There's something that says it shouldn't be this way, whether it is an unorganized garage or whether it is the fact that there's homeless children in Sumner County. You understand that when you say that there is something that is gripping me and the need is strong. Bill Hybels calls this a holy dissatisfaction. Write down that phrase if you're taking notes. There's, it's not a blank there, but a holy dissatisfaction. That there's something within me that won't be satisfied until this wrong is righted. There's something in me that won't be satisfied until I am part of the solution. It's not enough just to criticize. It's not enough just to curse the darkness. We're called to be a light in the darkness. And that dissatisfaction drives us. For Nehemiah, it was the fact that the city he loved and the city that that meant so much to them was in ruin. It, the greatness of the city was a distant memory to him. And he could not stand it. For Martin Luther, he couldn't stand the fact that the church was corrupted. That the priests took advantage of the people by selling them indulgences. That they misused the scripture and twisted it. And they kept the scripture from people. And Martin Luther, in 1517, because he couldn't stand it anymore, he went to the doors of, of Wittenberg and, and he nailed the 95 Thesis to the doors of the church to protest because he had a holy dissatisfaction to say it can't be this way anymore. 
John Wesley couldn't stand the fact that the Church of England had become a social club and you had to be part of the elite to get a seat in church and that you had to give a certain amount of money to have access to the church. And because he couldn't stand it anymore and because he, he had a holy dissatisfaction, he left the, the churches and he went out into the fields and he would preach to the coal miners and he's the first person, one of the first people uh, uh, that we know that took preaching outside of the church and he went to the people because he couldn't stand the fact anymore that the church was so corrupt like that. Bob Pierce was a businessman who in the 1950s would travel around the world and he would travel especially through Asia. And there in Asia he would, he would see uh, little children who would stand in line to get food and they would literally die while they're standing in line. And he said he couldn't stand it anymore. And so that holy dissatisfaction, that, that sense in him that this is not right with the world, he quit his business job and he started a ministry you've probably heard of called World Vision. And today World Vision is one of the preeminent national ministries that, that are feeding the poor. All of this came out of this, this sense of dissatisfaction in people. It's a need that grips you. So I want you to think about your life. That, that sense in you that, that this needs to change and you can't get away with it. There, there's that particular issue. There's that one project. There's that thing that just keeps pulling at you and it keeps bugging you. That could be God's birthing of a vision within you. And one of the most significant books of the last 15 years is The Purpose Driven Life. In fact, I was trying to find statistics on this and it's staggering uh, that how many books of the purpose-driven life have been sold. That I don't want to be, I don't want to, um, I didn't find the facts of this, but I had heard once before that it had surpassed Pilgrim's Progress and was below the Bible as one of the most distributed books ever, and it just came out in, in the last decade. Um, how many of you have read The Purpose-Driven Life? It's an excellent book, in my, in my opinion, so a lot of you read it. Okay, the first line of the book this is one of those books that you could just read the first line, and if you just put it down, you, you'd be successful. The first line of this book is, it's not about me. That's the first, the first phrase. It's not about me. And I think that Rick Warren really tapped into the, the, some, that concept of the purpose-driven life because it really isn't about us. We, we're coming and we're part of a, a real change of mindset. And I, and I think for the greater good in America, in the American church, and even in culture in large, where we are becoming less egocentric and less self-centered and realizing that our actions affect other people. And I want you to write this down. Because God's vision for you accomplishes His purpose for others. I think that's one of the hardest things that we don't realize. We always, we always want to say, how can I be successful? How can I advance myself? How can I um, become, become better and improve myself? And in a lot of ways, we were taught that way. The, the whole concept of individualism. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go out there and succeed. And while all those concepts have truths in them, and they are great motivators, the truth is, with God... What motivates us is that our vision, His vision for our life, directly affects the destiny of other people. Our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, the people around us, we have no idea how the choices we make affect people. It's not about us. It's, you know, it's God's vision. When God begins to give you a holy dissatisfaction, when God begins to stir you about something, it's not because of you. 
It's not because He wants you to be great. It's not because He wants you to become well-known. It's not because He wants your name to become well-known. It's because He has attached He has attached your destiny to bless others. And that's why you exist. So the purposes of God's vision for you is to accomplish His purpose in others. In 1998, I was in a church service and I was rather young. At that time, I was 22 years old, I think, and... Um, 22, 23, somewhere around there. And I was sitting in a church service and I thought the Holy Spirit told me clearly something. He said, the Lord said, Aaron, you're going to be a Timothy. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. But what does that mean, Lord? You're going to be a Timothy. And, and he said, and then he went on to say, he pressed this in my spirit, he said, you're going to be a young pastor. And I knew that was from the Lord. I knew from that time, even though I loved being a youth pastor and all that went with that, and, and honestly, I had aspirations to do other things besides pastoring, uh, I knew then that God had called me to lead a local church and to lead a flock, and it was going to happen at an early age. Um, after that, believe it or not, it was a real struggle for me because it took seven years for that to come to fruition. So I started being a senior pastor at age 29, which is coming up on five years next month. Uh, and those seven years, I mean, those seven years, I was like, would ever happen, Lord? <laughs> I thought you promised this. And, and, you know, now that I'm getting older and, and have more perspective, I, I see now how blessed I was to, to be able to, to start at an early age. and I'm moving into the era now where I have not heard in the last two years, no one's called me a young pastor, so I've just kind of moved into I'm 34 now, and so uh, I don't know, I'm just moving out of the era. I'm, I'm struggling with that a little bit. But the point is this, is that even though the Lord had given me that vision and given me that call, and I've already shared with you that there was that sense of uh, dissatisfaction, is there was a waiting period. There, there was a, a time of seasoning right down number three. God's vision is seasoned and defined. We're going to talk about how that is. But God's vision is seasoned and defined. And that's just how God works. His timing is always perfect. He only gives us what we can handle. He wants us to develop our character. He wants us to develop who we are. So He gives us a word and then often doesn't give us the details. He gives you a burden... He gives you a burden, this holy dissatisfaction. It says, things shouldn't be this way. We need to go make changes. We're going we're gonna to initiate change. We're going to do it differently. We're going to be change agents. And then all of a sudden, the question comes, how in the world are we going to do this? And that's what the Lord does. For whatever reason, most of the time, He gives us the vision before He gives the instruction. He gives the dream before He gives the directive. That God stirs us all up and we get all stirred up and ready to go and we're ready to lead the charge. And then He says, wait, wait. Get ready to go, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then He says, you know, you go into Jerusalem and you pray for 120 days and don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes on you. God stirs that up. Go, go, go. And then He says, you wait for Me. And He does that for a reason because there's a seasoning. There, there is a time of seasoning. There's a time of preparation. And, and I want you to see through, through the Scripture some ways that we're seasoned and we are um, some ways we are seasoned and, and we're defined. Let's look at verse 4 of Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 1, verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, he heard that the walls were broken down. I sat down and wept. I, I want us just to 
stay there for a second on that on, on that phrase. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I want you to write under letter A this word. You can put that up, Randy. Compassion. Compassion. There is something about sitting with people and understanding who they are and what they're about before you can truly impact their life or lead them. You know, it is one of the phrases we used to learn in Young Life when I was part of Young Life as a, as a student and volunteer is this, we earn the right to be heard. You earn the right to be heard. And that applies to every principle of your life. And there's something about compassion. Compassion is when you begin... And compassion is when you begin to feel the hurt and pain of others or feel the situation of other people. And sometimes you just have to sit and weep and let that sink in. But Penny and Pastor Kim has done a great job of helping to frame our night in the sense of we're here together in community, we're worshiping God, but we're not forgetting uh, the catastrophe in Haiti. I'll talk to you just a second about Haiti. Uh, right before I even came out here and teach, and to teach tonight, uh, I was on a phone call just talking to people, uh, or talking to one person in particular about, about ways our church can respond, and we will respond. But what I, what I want you to understand, too, is that in my spirit, I'm feeling that we need to think long-term on this also. Uh, we don't even know the magnitude uh, of the deaths that, that are happening and the, the infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt. Haiti has 9 million people. So let you know a little bit about it. The good news is Haiti's about 96% Christian. I went on CIA.gov, 80% Roman Catholic, 16% Protestant. But half of those practice voodoo. So there's, there's definitely a lot of education that needs to happen there. Um, and um, so th this, is going to, th this is going to be something, I think, that being in the Western Hemisphere, being so close to us, uh, again, even as Penny mentioned, there's so many of you have uh, relational connections there. That is something that maybe the church we're going to have to think about a little more long term. And, um, you know, there's 45,000 Americans who live in Haiti. 45,000 Americans who live there. So there's a lot of us that are going to be touched. But compassion means, means sitting a little bit, not just being a knee-jerk reaction, but just saying, Lord, how can we... We, how, how, how can we be part of the solution long term? And so that's just on my mind tonight, and I wanted to use that point to, to, um, to, to just declare that and make that known. Look at, again at verse 4. Verse 4. So he said, I sat and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So to be seasoned and defined, you have to have some compassion. And, and you know that's one of the reasons I think that, that older leaders are good leaders. So we're having a trend right now of just, you know, let's get somebody young to be our pastor, or be our, our senator, be our president, you know. Let's just focus on that. But there's something about uh, a seasoned man or woman that has a level of compassion because they understand the world and they've been through circumstances. So I, I just think that's a trend in our society we need to be careful about, uh, that, that we don't just look to charisma or youth, but we look to wisdom. So there's compassion, but B is this, is waiting. And that goes hand in hand, waiting. And, and there's certain, there's certain um, levels of leadership that need to be waited upon. There's certain opportunities that need to be waited upon. And there's something in the waiting, there's a seasoning that even though you identify what your vision is, the seasoning makes it crystal clear. And I can just say, as a young leader myself, 
uh, even that that the more I wait, the clearer the vision's becoming. The more seasoned it is, the richer it is, the more mature it is. And so, if you've got a vision and it doesn't all come to pass in a week, a month, a year, a decade, God, if He birthed it, has not forgotten that and has not forgotten you. He's seasoning it, and He's giving you more compassion, and He's giving you giving you time to wait. So it's going to be exactly what He wants it to be. See, prayer and fasting. Going on in verse 4, let's look at verse 4. Prayer and fasting, that's your next blank. Let's start in verse 4 and, and read through uh, verse 5. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We'll just pause there for now. So the, the prayer and fasting, and let me. this is the reason why prayer and fasting is important. I've already referenced this earlier. There's so many needs in the world that if we just try to solve every problem, there's not enough focus to do that. So when you pray and are led by the Spirit and you fast and the Holy Spirit says, this is your vision, this is what you need to be involved in, then that, that precision, that divine flow, that divine connection can make, can make that known. And D is this, planning. Write it down, planning. Planning is C. Nehemiah 1.11 says this. You can put that, put that up for me. It's up there. You find 11. While he's doing that, listen to this quote. Okay, let's go ahead and go back to the verse. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. He, Nehemiah was in an influential position as a king's cupbearer. And so it wasn't just, oh, I feel bad for Jerusalem. Oh, I feel bad and something should be done. He strategically, he strategically took his position and his influence as cupbearer of the king. And he planned to go at him at the proper time so the king would receive his news. And so when you have a vision, when that, once you've had compassion and you've had prayer and you've had fasting and waiting, then you need to plan so you can implement your plan. And we're going to talk about that in subsequent weeks. Time and prayer, here's our last point, will determine whether it's a good idea or a God-given vision. What's a good idea or God-given vision? Let's stand together. This has been a Church at Indian Lake podcast. Be sure to check out IndianLakeChurch.com for all updated news and information.